shape other people. And we'll do that with, with the, the, the account of Elijah, the experienced old-timing prophet, calling and then equipping and then finally unleashing the younger new prophet, Elisha. I'm going to read to you from two sections of Scripture. The first one is from the call of Elisha. Um, this is a, a, 1 Kings chapter 19. Keep in mind, this is right after Elijah has this great bout of depression. He's ready to give up. God says, no, you can't give up because I want you to call this guy to come after you. So this is the call. And then we have the departure of Elijah where the, the mantle is passed, so to speak. So 1 Kings chapter 19. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, he was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the twelfth pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah said. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. Fast forward to the end of Elijah's life and the beginning of Elisha's ministry. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came to Elisha and asked, Do you know what the Lord is going to that do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha, the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophets of Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men of the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, 
What can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said, yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak, his mantle that had fallen from him, and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. The company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. This is the word of our God. I'm not going to mess time today with an introduction. The introduction is this. There are going to be three parts to this sermon. One, I'm going to make a claim. Here's, here's the foundation for what I want to say to you. Here's the claim. Two, I'm going to pose some questions I want you to think about. And three, I'm going to lay down a challenge. And, and as, I've rest, as I've prepared this sermon and thought about it over the last couple of days, the mood of the, cha- the sermon has changed in my heart. And, and what I mean is this is, I had meant this to be like a raise the banner kind of sermon, and now I hope it can be more of a healing, restoration, recharging kind of sermon as we walk into God's Word. So as we do that, would you pray with me? Lord God, you inspire the prophets in more than one way. You've inspired, you inspired the prophets and gave them your very words that they might speak to your people. And you inspired them in another way. You poured out your Holy Spirit on them and, and gave them life that they might be your servants. And I pray that you would do the latter for your people, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on them and restore and refresh them, that they might live not by their strength, but by the strength of your Spirit. So to that end, Father... May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts, let it be pleasing in your sight. God, you alone are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is the claim. This is the argument. This is the thesis of the sermon. Discipleship and Christian formation is a community project. I mentioned that to you, I mentioned that in an introduction or something like that a couple of weeks ago, that discipleship and Christian formation, that the Christian life is a community project. And what I mean when I say that is, it's not, the the life of a Christian is not meant to be lived alone. We grow in the faith by living in community with each other. And you might say, well, let's think about this. There are Christians who have lived in isolation. Elijah the prophet for one, John, John on the island of Patmos, another, Jeremiah, his, his ministry was very much isolated. But those are the exceptions, and I would say, and not the rule. In fact, you see that when these, these prophets are living in isolation and they're doing this in isolation from the community, when the community stands against them and they're alone, you see that they kind of crumble. That's when Jeremiah weeps. That's when Elijah gives up. Maybe I can prove it to you this way. I'm sure that no one else did this except for me, but yesterday was the Ironman World Championships in Kona, Hawaii. Anybody watch it? It was like eight hours long. I didn't watch all eight hours of it. I had better things to do with my time. 
But the, the Ironman championships, I won't bore you with the details, but it's the, the fastest racers get done in seven hours and 40 minutes. So it's a long race. What I'm, the reason I bring this up is they don't get to the start line and even to the finish line without training in a community. Each athlete has a coach, multiple coaches, who, who not only train their bodies but train their minds and help them figure out what to eat, how to recover, all of those things. And then the best athletes also train in, in groups, in clans, in squads. In fact, the two guys, the guy that got first and the guy that got third, I think they actually got to first and third because they ran as a crew from the very beginning of the race. If you really want to know, you can read it. They ran together and they were able to chase down the guy in front of them who was five minutes in front of them when the run started. Okay, enough of that. You get the point, right? We, we grow in the faith by living in community with each other. Now, I want to be very clear about this this morning, that it's not just the community. God is the one who does the work of Christian formation. God is the one who does the work of growing us up as children. But even God himself, he does it as a community. Remember this from the very beginning of, of our walk. Remember this from the very beginning of creation. God did not just do creation on his own. He said, let us make man in our image. And then it is God the Father. You can think about this in terms of the Father, Son, and Spirit as a community, as, as a team, as, as one God. That's who they are. God the Father, he created you. And all your members, your mind and all your abilities, he gave you eyes and ears. He gave you all of that. He, he provides for you. He protects you. He governs you day after day. And he does that. Your Father does that for you, not because you've earned or deserved it, can you hear Luther? Not because you've earned or deserved it, but because he's your father. He does this for you not because you're good or because you're going to be good, but because he's good and gracious to you. That's the father's work, to form you and to shape you as a created being. And it's the son's work to redeem you. He redeemed you. Again, can you remember Luther? He redeemed you, a lost and condemned creature. He purchased and won you from all sins, not with gold or silver, but with holy, precious blood, with innocent suffering and death. And why did he do this for you? To make you his own, so that you might be his own and live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. This is God the Son's work in your life to redeem you and make you His. And the Spirit, He's, too, he's involved too. He calls you by the gospel. He calls you by the gospel. He enlightens you with His gifts. He sanctifies and he, he keeps you in this true faith. The reason that you are who you are, the reason that you serve as you serve, the reason that you're here this morning is because God has poured His Spirit out on you and the Spirit will continue to work in your life. He's gathered this church together. And what does the Spirit do in this church? In this church, He daily and fully forgives all sins to me, to you, and to all believers in Christ. On the last day, He will raise all the dead and give eternal life to you and to me and to all believers in Christ. See, Christian formation, God does it. It's God's work, but God Himself does it as a community. He continues to, to say, let us, Father, Son, and Spirit, let us work in man, let us work in humankind and make them in our image. 
God does the work, but He entrusts the tools for that work to the church, to a community. Do do you see the gifts that God has given to us, His church? Or maybe I should say it this way, do you see the gifts, the tools that God has given to us, a small band of believers within the church? He's given us the gospel in water and word. He's given us the gospel that's proclaimed and read. He's given us the gospel, the visible gospel in bread and wine, his body and blood. He entrusts these gifts to us, his word, his sacraments. He's given these gifts to a community. And he says to his community, to us, his, his band of believers, he says, use these gifts for the building up of God's people. So that as Paul says, we might all grow up into Christ who is the head. See, it's God who does the work of discipleship. It is God who does the Christian formation, but he entrusts the tools of that work to his church. And how does the church carry out that work except through people like you and me? When I teach baptism to the, to the kids, I try to give them, just because it's easy to wrap into our minds, I try to give them a formula, a math formula. It's water plus the, come on, word equals forgiveness of sins, life, salvation, eternal life, adoption, all the gifts of God. And then I keep, I keep repeating it because it takes kids, maybe adults too, a long time to get it. And, they, and I say, what are the core, what are, what's part of the math equation? What are the core components of baptism? And almost inevitably, I don't know what your experience is, Pastor Krieger, but almost inevitably they say, a pastor. And you used to say that they're wrong. Now I say, sure, you need a person. You need a person to take water and speak the word and apply it to a baby or an adult. The the person doesn't do the work. Pastor Krieger and I don't do the work, but we are instrumental in carrying out the baptism. In other words, a baby, a person can't get baptized by themselves. A person can't hear a sermon by themselves. A person can't be encouraged in the faith at a low moment in their lives by themselves. A person can't be rebuked for their sin by themselves. The very nature of the table is that it is a community meal. That's why we call it communion. Right? See, what God does, God does His work but he entrusts it to people who handle the means of grace. And by those means, he forms us as his people. Do you see now why I make the claim that Christian formation and discipleship is a community project? Because together, God, because through the church, through you and through me, God dispenses these powerful means by which he changes us, transforms us, and especially saves us. This is the claim. Here's my question. I have two of them. The first question is this. Just put it up there. Who is mentoring you and helping you to grow as a follower and servant of Christ? 
I want you to think about this for a moment. Who is the one who is walking with you as a brother or as a sister, shoulder to shoulder, through life, to bring you God's Word at those most important moments of your life? Jesus, when he mentors his disciples, he calls them to walk with him. Elisha, when he follows Elijah, he leaves his family and he walks with Elijah. Paul and Barnabas, they're going into ministry as brothers, shoulder to shoulder. The disciples, they go out into the world and they usually, Jesus sent them two by two. So, so who is it in your life that is mentoring and encouraging you in the faith? I want to encourage my fellow called workers for a minute. And maybe this isn't the time or place, but I'm doing it anyway. Because I want to encourage you. It's real easy, and I'll say this as one who's experienced it. It's real easy as a called worker to think that you don't need a pastor. And I, Pastor Krieger and I had this conversation. Pastors need pastors. Teachers need pastors. Who is it in your life whom you confess your sins to, to whom you bear your soul, who can bring you a direct word of God to your life? We can't do it alone, and we shouldn't pretend that we can. I'll tell you one of the biggest blessings that I've ever received is being a part, and I've, money is paid for it, thank you, Mount Lebanon, for me to be a part of Cross Train Ministries. It, it forces me into relationships with other pastors to whom I can confess my sins, who can serve as sounding boards for me, who can encourage me and preach the gospel to me. Because the thing is, remember, Elijah, follow Elijah, but right before he calls Elisha, he's all by himself, and he wants to give up. So what did God do? He not only gave him purpose, but he forced Elijah into a community with Elisha. And these two, two by two for the rest of Elijah's life, I think, the details are scant. They walk shoulder to shoulder. So who is it who's mentoring you, who's helping you to grow in your faith? And I'll say this, Pastor Krieger and I long to do that with you. Please don't say we're too busy. It's what we're called to do. We want to. When your heart is heavy, when you're struggling, even when you're not, we want to be your pastor and your brother and to walk with you. So, question one, who is mentoring you and encouraging you in the faith? Question two, who is it who's encouraging, who, who are you mentoring and helping to grow in the faith? All right, I'm not going to pick on the called workers anymore. I'm going to pick on everybody. Actually, I'm going to pick on the old people, the experienced people. The, the, I'm going to pick on the adults. One of the things I think that we do in the church is that we say to ourselves, where are all the young people? Why won't they step up and do something and be a part of what we're doing in the church? And I want to turn the question and say, what are you doing to raise up the next generation? I've heard it said that there is no success without a successor. 
I've heard it, what are you doing? I'm, I can just say, leave it there. What are you doing to identify a younger person or a really young person? To just encourage them in the faith. You don't have to say, oh, I want to train you to do this. Maybe you can. Or maybe as an experienced Christian, you can take a grade school kid or a high school kid and find out what they're going through and help them to grow in the faith. Connect to them. Bring your Christian experience to their lives. Second thing I want to say to the adults our kids are already members of the body of Christ. That shouldn't come as a surprise to you because when kids are baptized, they become part of the body of Christ. But one of the things that happens without us even trying to do it is we think to ourselves, kids aren't really members of the church until they're confirmed. Then they can start to do stuff for the church and kids don't really matter until they're 18 when they can vote. And I just want to say, please, let's do something about our kids and help them have a meaningful role here at Mount Lebanon. Because our young people, they're not just the future of the church, they are the presence of the church. So adults, take some young children under your wing. Ushers, grab a kid and say, can you help me today? Just grab them. <laughs> Ask their parents maybe first. But do grab them, encourage them in small ways, just small, simple ways to say, say to our young people, our kids, you matter. And, and sorry, this is another sidebar. Please don't give them meaningless work that nobody else wants to do. Give them important things that they can do for the church. Parents, I want to say th something to you too. Because in your family, you have the OG, the original small group. It's the God-ordained one, right? Father and mother with, with children. Fathers, your children are watching your devotion to the Lord. I, I, in, in my heart, I, I, I kind of believe that this is true, that sometimes our children learn more from us about following Jesus by watching us than by what we teach them. You can say a lot to them in a five-minute Bible study, but they are watching you. I'm very cognizant of if I'm complaining about church, my children will likewise complain about church. But if I'm excited about what we're doing, if I keep my grumbling to myself and I serve the Lord with joy, then they'll follow that. And don't underestimate how important a five or ten minute time with your children singing and praying and reading the Bible is for their Christian formation. Parents, you have such an important role in raising up your children to know the Lord. This question is for you. Because God's given your children to you to raise them up to know the Lord. Isn't this whole thing, isn't this exactly how Jesus, shall, how Jesus shaped and formed and discipled his disciples? He said to the twelve, he said, come follow me and I will make you, train you, shape you, equip you to be fishers of men. And how did Jesus do it? He didn't sit there and say, all right, guys, take notes. He said, come on. How did Jesus, why did the disciples ask Jesus to pray? Because they saw him praying. They caught his example. And then he taught them how to pray. Sure, there were formal classroom settings where Jesus said, let me explain to you this parable. 
but it was largely a ministry of watching and learning and doing and the feedback loop. And Elijah and Elisha, there's not a lot of details in how Elijah passed the baton to Elisha, but it's really quite simple when you start to think about it. They spent time together. In this last account, what did, what did Elisha refuse to do? He refused to leave Elijah's side. No, I'm not leaving you because I, you're my mentor. You're, you're the one I'm following after. I'm going I'm to pick this up after you. So he, he stays close. That's how, that's how the call ended. He left, he burned the yoke, and he left it and followed Elijah. Before I move on to the, to the challenge, I want to exercise my role, my call as pastor. Because I've laid it on you, maybe a little thick. And I've challenged you to think about your life of following Jesus. So let me exercise my role as pastor and tell you this. As his servant, I forgive you all of your sins for your isolation, for your failure to follow Jesus, for your despising of the little ones, for thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. I forgive you all of your sins in the name of Jesus. You are forgiven. Do you believe this? Let it be to you as you have said. It is. So here's the challenge. These are a little bit or, out of order in terms of the text, but first challenge is this, burn the yoke. This is where we get to Elijah and Elisha. It always amazes me that when Jesus calls the 12, they just drop the nets. He said, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And they're like, okay. These disciples who followed Jesus, they were, it seems like they were profitable. They were making it big as fishermen. And they're like, all right, bye. And, and Elijah too, or Elisha too, when Elisha tosses the mantle over him, Elisha, what did he do? He burned the yoke which means all the plowing instruments, which means the, the oxen that he was using to, with which to plow, he burned it all up as a sacrifice to God and he said to his mom and dad, bye, I'm following Elijah. It always amazes me when they drop everything to follow Jesus. Dear people of God, somebody tossed a mantle over you. Somebody tossed a baptismal robe over you and called you to follow Jesus. Somebody applied water and the word over you and clothed you with Christ. Somebody called you. Jesus used that somebody to call you to follow after him with your whole life. And your call to follow Jesus will look different than my call to follow Jesus. But our call to Jesus is all in many ways the same. To burn the yoke, to drop the nets, to deny ourselves, and follow after him. So burn the yoke. And secondly, toss the mantle. When Jesus called his disciples to follow him, 
and to spend time with him. He did not do that just for them alone. It was for them alone because Jesus wanted to save them and to equip them and train them to follow him. But it was not just for them alone. He called them to, make fisher, to be fishers of men, that is to fish for other people. And when Elijah called Elisha to follow him by tossing the mantle over his shoulders, he did not do that for Elisha alone. He did it for the host of prophets whom Elisha would train. He did it for the people to whom Elisha would preach. See, when God tossed his, your a baptismal mantle over you, he did not do that for you alone. Oh, he did. Because your baptismal robe is your baptismal robe and it's yours alone. It's your righteousness. It's in Christ. It's in Christ alone. But it is not for you alone. It is for the people with whom you will share Christ. It is with the children whom you will raise to know the Lord. It, was, it, is, it is for the friend with whom you will walk shoulder to shoulder and bring Christ to that relationship. Burn the yoke. Toss the mantle. This is the way. It, it's how Jesus multiplies disciples. It's how Jesus raises up another generation. It's how Jesus raises up more followers of his who will keep on tossing mantles and burning yokes. This is the way. God help us. Amen? Amen. Now the God of peace grant you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you. Amen.